You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Real Vision Live. For Real Vision, I'm Max Weathy. I'm joined today by Jim Grant. He's an author, historian, and the legendary founder of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jim. You're entirely welcome, Max. Nice to be here. Well, it, this is uh, truly the, the pleasure is all mine here. And, and really, it was a pleasure because I got to read Grant's Interest Rate Observer actually for the first time. I have been a, a fan and I've listened Where to- Where have you been, Max? Well, I, I've been poor. Um, and, and so I, I have had the pleasure of, of being a Real Vision subscriber, and I, I was introduced to you through Real Vision and your series here and your wonderful interviews, but I got to read it for the first time. And as somebody who you know really took the title uh, very literally, uh, I was surprised at how much you observed beyond just interest rates. So my first question for you is, what exactly is an interest rate observer, and, and how does it play out in your writing? Well, we got into business uh, when there actually were interest rates. This was uh, 37 plus years ago. God, you should have seen them, Max. They were towering. <laughs> and uh, by then, the world had been through uh, a generation and a half's worth of, uh, of a truly uh, remarkable bear bond market. The bill started out at uh, like two and a quarter percent in 1946, and by the time it ended, in 1981, they had uh, ascended to 15%. So interest rates were all the rage. And then the, the topic was uh, uh, the discipline of real interest rates. Interest rates pitched well above the rate of inflation. And the thinking was that uh, with rates so high uh, that uh, the federal government would have to, uh, be, have to watch itself in its fiscal affairs because, after all, the bond vigilantes, they were a thing, uh, would withhold their favors if they decided, the bond vigilantes decided that inflation was coming on. So that was the that was the kind of background setting to our founding in 1983. So interest rate seemed um, uh, the the very the very thing to the kind of the uh, the marketing sizzle. So fast forward uh, a mere generation and a half, and here we are. And interest rates the world over have made news for other reasons. They are at literal 4,000-year lows. There is a book called The History of Interest Rates. Uh, Scylla and Sidney Homer, co-authors. And uh, if you plow through that, you will see that these are the lowest rates since 2000 BC, featuring, featuring of all things, Max, more than $17 trillion worth of securities, uh, price to yield less than nothing. And I'm here to tell you that was not the first thing at the top of the mind of the market in 1983. So if you live long enough and uh, you know, uh, eat right, get plenty of exercise, you will see astounding things on Wall Street. So uh, in the absence of rates, and uh, actually we never have devoted our single-mindedly to staring at interest rates, but what we hope to do in every issue, every couple of weeks, is to feature a long idea, a short idea, credit or equity, uh, comment on monetary affairs, an observation on something that's very, maybe it's uh, the history of the idea of fiduciary prudence that featured in the recent issue of ours. We try to 
don't know, I try to imagine what I would like to read um, if I were a subscriber. And uh, so uh, you know, that's, that's what we, you know, I, I um, I'm also, uh, I'm mindful of the fact that we can hardly compete with amassed computing power on Wall Street, I mean, if we were to get into the quant business, we would be not at the front of the line of, uh, of, uh, of excellent uh, um, practitioners. So we have to look for our niches, and one of our niches is history. I, I'm fascinated by financial history. I think that the financial past, I won't tell you where the next tick is coming from, but it will help you put in perspective the financial future. It helps you to put in perspective the financial present and help you to imagine the financial future. To my mind, at least, imagination is one of the unsung qualities of a successful investor. The idea to see beyond the present moment, not get caught up in things as they are or have recently been. So history is one of our things as well. Yes, and I noticed that, and I read that section on the history of fiduciary responsibility, and it wasn't just about the history of fiduciary responsibility. It was alluding to potential changes that will occur in the future about fiduciary responsibility in terms of the fact that, as you said, $17 trillion of negative yielding debt. It's it's not so unreasonable to to picture a future where that that allocation of $17 trillion to negative yielding debt might be looked at as imprudent and a... And right. a, or a failure of that of Correct. exercising that fiduciary responsibility, and so it isn't as much purely an analysis of the past as it is the future. And and I, I will say, your taste, if if your goal is to uh, is to to pick what you think your readers might be interested in, your your taste is impeccable because it, it was a pleasure um, to read those. But I was surprised at some of the. Um, you know, the that piece, Max, was was really about the cycles of uh, financial ideas. So uh, in the beginning, um, you know, people thought that uh, you had to be in uh, perpetual English government securities called DILTS, right? They were called consoles. That was, those the, that was the bedrock of the very definition of, of prudence. Well, along comes uh, uh, an entrepreneur who says, you know, that's not necessarily the thing. Look at, look at uh, the equity. It's regenerative. It, uh, it helps you... Uh, get into the current of financial and commercial progress. So these ideas roll along. So um, uh, you will read in the Wall Street Journal, the FT, you will read as, an, as a descriptor of present-day bonds, you will read something like super safe, this adjective, super safe bonds, super safe treasure, super safe bonds. Well, isn't safety a function of price and value and not inherent in the nature of an asset class? So that, that was the point of that piece to show that there, there ain't nothing like inherent prudence or safety. It, it, it is a matter of, of certainly to be sure of social consensus, of financial consensus, but fundamentally underneath it all is a matter of price and value. And uh, sometimes the world is in accord with that idea and sometimes it couldn't care less. Uh, for the moment, I think the world could scarcely care less about price and value. Yeah, and and you talk about the changing uh, changing financial ideas, and and one anybody with with a, a little bit of intellectual honesty would say that clearly you have a view, you do have a view, and perhaps that view is shaped by the financial history and the the views that you've lived through. So you know you were you were born into the great bond bear market of uh, the post war years, and and you you. As you said, you you formed your business 
um, after the, the great inflation of the 70s. So one might ask, are you not keeping up with the times? Are your views influenced by oh, that what history? I need someone to think I'm not keeping up with the times. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, no, it, it is an excellent question. I, I, um, I think to a degree, we are all prisoners of our environments. Now, the, uh, the good that a historian can contribute is to help people escape from that uh, they call it, I think the fancy word now is presentism. Um, but I, I, I'm certain that uh, I carry the luggage of, uh, of the bond bear market and of the great inflation with me. I, um, I certainly wish I had chucked it off rather sooner. Um, but, you know, I, I, I was born in July 1946. Bonds made their, uh, made their um, high in price and low in yield in April. Now, my mother told me about that, but I, uh, that, uh, I lived through um, from that moment to uh, 1981. I lived through the, all, so I, 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 all I saw was rising interest rates to the extent that I paid attention um, in my very youthful years. Um, well, interest rates rose. That's what they did. So lo and behold, what has followed is uh, we are now knocking on the door of year 40. Year 40, this is the uh, 39th year of the great bond bull market. And people, you have to have some gray hairs to have recalled the preceding bear market bonds. So um, I think that uh, I think that in possibly, now this might be rather self-regarding, but I'm going to propose uh, that uh, my um, uh, my uh, uh, kind of imprisonment in my own uh, life experience, that's ending. And now I'm the carrier <laughs> of the wisdom of what can happen to bonds at a time of, uh, of fiscal recklessness and monetary uh, malfeasance. So that's that's my story, and I'm I'm kind of sticking to that, Max. But I certainly concede uh, that a lot of the errors I've made over the course of I'm better than almost 50 years now, and in or near Wall Street, a lot of the errors I made have been a, a, a lack of imagination about what can happen. So if you would ask me in. Um, September 30th, 1981, when bonds intraday hit 15% on the 30 year. Tell me, Jen, do you think that in your lifetime, and may it be a long life one, in your lifetime, do you expect that uh, you will live to see the 30 year treasury bond trading at less than one and a half percent? And I would say, for Pete's sake, would you, Jim, have uh, that? Do you expect that you will live to see a Japanese junk bond trading at 1% or? Uh, Portuguese sovereign debt treating below zero, and I would not have answered. Why? Certainly, because anything is possible in this time of financial um, uh, heterogeneous uh, heterodoxy, and we certainly live in a time of financial heterodoxy, meaning that anything goes. I mean, this is, in fact, let us get down to some of these charts, shall we? Yes. Now, yes. we need a visual aid here, Max. This is this is fabulous stuff. All right. The first one was going to sound, I promise you, I'm going to you. This is going to sound a little bit antique. This is the uh, uh, this is the uh, uh, the saying of a uh, of a lord of an English um, a nobleman 
in the first half of the 19th century. His name was Lord Liverpool. So uh, I'm going to read it myself. The tendency of inconvertible paper currency is to create fictitious wealth bubbles, which by the first produce inconvenience. Don't you love that word inconvenience? Yes. Thanks. You got to say you love it. It's very English. It's perhaps the most English part of that whole statement. Right. Okay. So what what he is driving at is that without an anchor, without uh, something in the way of a tangible definition of money based uh, ideally upon a weight of a precious metal, um, that the temptation will, will be irresistible to over-issue that currency and the proliferating pound sterling or dollars or lira, what have you, they will tempt people into things they ought not to do. Speculate on unreasonable situations, uh, pay unreasonable prices and generate a bubble, which by its bursting will produce what the British would call an inconvenience and we would, what we would call a really bad day at the office. Right? So that was laying down the law almost exactly uh, 200 years ago. Right? So that would seem, as I say, to be somewhat of an antique statement, except I hope to show you that it is the very absence of such inhibitions as the gold standard uh, that have led us to this really interesting juncture in finance. All right, so let's have the next one. So the next one, I think, is, uh, is this... Uh, this is, this is, this is, the, this is the, the unreal rates, right. as you right. call them. So way back when, um, the thinking was that uh, when you get a rate of interest, a policy rate of interest below the rate of inflation, you are asking for trouble. You are asking for inflation. Because, uh, you know, it costs nothing in real terms to borrow. People will borrow. They will overdo it. Uh, another, uh, not quite a contemporary of Lord Liverpool, but a guy after my own heart, Walter Badgett, uh, said that uh, money, wa- money wants to be prolific and credit wants to be ubiquitous, meaning all around us. All right. That was during the gold standard. But real interest rates, very low or negative, would induce overborrowing. So we look at, look at how, for how long, we have been uh, enjoying the fruits, speculative fruits, of mostly negative real rates. All right, so on to the next one. So this is, uh, uh, this is a little, uh, yeah, this is our, our Thanksgiving cartoon in France. And this is a takeoff on Norman Rockwell's um, uh, World War II series of, of the Four Freedoms. This is free, he, he called it Freedom from What? And uh, what the readers of France saw was that we actually have freedom from real interest rates. And that has, uh, has uh, informed and juiced up every single market under the sun. That has given us the everything bubble. All right, so on to the next one. So um, without the inhibition of uh, a dollar convertible into gold at someone's request and, um, or other uh, features of the Dear dead days of more monetary and fiscal orthodoxy. What you have is uh, you have a lot of borrowing, a lot of lending, right? So what this graph shows is headline House of Good Intentions. And it shows you that the, the rise, the pre-pandemic rise in federal debt, despite these uh, laws and uh, resolutions by Congress that uh, attempted to rein in things on the federal fisc. For example, Graham Rudman's howling Brand Rudman Hollings Balanced Budget Act of what, 1985. And then Budget Enforcement Act, a balanced budget, blah, 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 blah. None of it does any good because 
the dollar can be materialized at the tap of your keyboard, right? So on to the next one. And this shows uh, the still grosser federal debt. This goes back to uh, 1970 or so. And that's a fateful year in our, in our financial history because that was the year that Richard Nixon got in front of the TV cameras and said, uh, no longer will the dollar be exchangeable into gold at $35 an ounce. But the uh, dollar will be what the dollar will be. It'll be uh, something that the market will decide. Right? So uh, from 1971 to date, uh, the dollar has been a piece of paper or a digital impulse. And I submit to you that what this has given us is, uh, or has uh, certainly has allowed, has incentivized this immense issuance of federal debt. I mean, it took 190 odd years to get from to the first trillion. And uh, Ronald Reagan got on television and, uh, around the time that bond yields peaked in 1981, the fall of 1981. He got on television and said, we have just reached a trillion dollars in debt. That fact alone explains our difficulties. That was when long bond was pulling up to 15%, right? But notice what happened then, Max. What happened then was it went from one trillion to what is it, 27 or 28 trillion? <laughs> but rates have done nothing except go down. Perfect, right? Financial is all about paradox, all about that thing that can't happen that does happen. So what we have proven to ourselves is that the federal debt is of no consequence to anything except to the convenience of the political class, right? And, and, and those recipients of the goodies. Uh, so the final uh, graph would be, it's another cartoon of the, so this, this is uh, Grant's editorial comment on, uh, you know, way back, uh, not so way back, but uh, uh, when Ben Bernanke was getting started with Kiwi and with zero Fed funds rate, Anna Schwartz, who was Milton Friedman, wrote the Monetary History of the United States. Anna Schwartz says, scolding me, she said, you know, Ben Bernanke knows only two numbers, zero and trillion. <laughs> but so, okay, so that, 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 this, that, these sightings, you know, uh, describe to me the kind of the, the arc of our monetary affairs, ARC of our monetary affairs, right? you can see it. Um, what we have seen over the course of kind of a hundred years, take the last hundred years, is um, uh, less and less uh, do individuals bear uh, the consequences of poor financial decisions, right? More and more is credit being uh, supported and credit risk being sometimes nationalized by the federal government, certainly from the Deposit Insurance Act, 1934, and in 1935 came uh, another law that very few people know about, which was that henceforth, uh, the stockholders of a national bank would not themselves be taxed with a capital call when their bank ran into difficulties. Up until that time, if you own shares in the, uh, in the first national city bank, what city bank is people, and city got into trouble, you would get a capital call for the unpaid-in portion of the par value of your shares. Wow. So that would make you, more, make you pay more attention to the balance sheet, right? So the owners of banks were at risk. So that ended in 1935. And presently, along comes too big to fail. That's 1984. More and more lending, more and more borrowing. Uh, and so to 2008, 
when the uh, Treasury Secretary summons the big shot bankers, New York City, my goodness, these people are worth trillions on the hoof. And he says, all right, fellows, you are going to accept. You, you'll take 50 billion, you'll take 70 billion, you hundreds uh, for the good of the country and for your own virtually bankrupt firms, solvent by courtesy firms. You'll take it. And they say, oh, yes, we'll take it. And they sign a down bond. <laughs> except for one, except for one yeah. person who wouldn't yeah. accept it. And, and he was taken out to pasture. And did. But 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 the point survives the exaggeration. So so um, that is kind of the, that's where we find ourselves now. It's not all bearish. On the contrary, right? <laughs> it's rather bullish. This these effusions of credit, right? This this Fed put people don't object. People do not object. So but, but yeah. our job is to is to say okay, it's great for now, but when, if ever, does it end? That's the question for the house. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, we, we have a lot of questions from the audience, and many of them are along that line of when. And what will be the cause? And if so, then what are the investable opportunities that arise from this unraveling or the popping of this bubble? And and there are many bubbles that one could point to that are a result of this, either in equities. But but you seem particularly focused on the seventeen trillion of negative yielding debt and the bond market as as the biggest bubble of them all and the most obviously bubbly. Uh, for for lack of a better word, but before we get into that, there is a question from from Brian in the audience, which I think is is important. Um, and and you alluded to some of your your um, errors over the years. Um, but Brian wants to know who do you look to when you need a contrarian opinion to challenge this view that you have? Yeah. Have these people changed over the years? Um, and and he adds that he's a big fan of your interviews and podcasts. And and I know per, in particular you had Stephanie Kelton at your grants conference oh, yes. this year yeah. to talk about MMT. So you aren't you aren't scared of a little bit of challenging to your view. Uh, is Stephanie Kelton the, the type of person that you go, that you look at for the contrarian opinion? And how have the, the Stephanie Keltons of the world affected you uh, as, as the years have rolled on? Well, the first, the first person I can saw is Mr. Market himself. And I have learned to uh, have a much deeper respect uh, for the uh, uh, for the uh, uh, the currents of the market, I mean, I I'm a little bit ambivalent about this because I absolutely deny that uh, uh, markets efficiently digest and reflect all available information at all times. The efficient markets hypothesis to me is of a piece with the uh, some of these post-Keynesian uh, equilibrium models the Fed bases it's unerringly. Accurate or un, no, uh, uh, irretrievably inaccurate. For yeah. so you have to be. So I, I try to pay attention to what the market seems to be saying. Although the market today seems to be under the, the thrall of the monetary authorities. But um, so that's one thing. I pay attention to really intelligent people who absolutely think I am full of beans. Now, Stephanie Kelton might be a limiting example. She is a fabulous uh, debater 
and she is extremely thoughtful, and she has written this book that challenges every single notion of financial probity and good practice that I hold dear. You know, she says that when the Treasury issues a bond, it, uh, it actually is, that's the Treasury's liability, but look, it's somebody else's asset. And of course, that's a, that's a truism, but when you, when you stop and grapple with the, uh, with the, with the, uh, uh, with the postulates of modern monetary theory, it does you a world of good because you are forced to refine and adapt your own view to what you take away from that. And it sharpens perhaps your, your objections to other parts of that body of, of uh, doctrine. But um, so I, re I read the papers as we all do. I try not to linger too long over the things that reinforce my view. But isn't it fun to read somebody who says you're absolutely right? It, <laughs> so it is. I, I, I try, but um, uh, there, uh, there's a, a, a very close and dear friend of mine, Paul Isaac, who runs a, a hedge fund at Arbor Partners, and he's a value guy. But he is, a, he is a, a very eclectic thinker. He seems to know everything. In fact, I once dedicated a book to Paul Isaac, one of my books to Paul. I said, Paul J. Isaac, comma, who somehow knows everything. Yes. And uh, he is a very good uh, sounding board. Um, I pay attention to the quarterly pronouncements and analyses of Washington uh, Investment Management. Now, just as wrong as I have been on bonds for, shall we say, politely, a while, so has Ben Washington and its uh, number one analyst, Lacey Hunt, been absolutely on the money. They, interest rates could go to minus 20 percentage points. <laughs> I'm, not sure they, I'm not sure they could bearish. I, I wait in expectation of their changing their minds. But, uh, and Gary Schilling is a deflation guy, and I respect his judgment and try to absorb what I can from his views. Um, but um, uh, was it Brian who asked the question? No, uh, Jim Chanos is a short seller who is necessarily on the opposite side of almost everyone at most all times, right? And, and he will, uh, is, I think he still does this call, the relevant sell side analyst and was often by him sit down, say, let's have a talk about this situation. I want to I want to hear the bull case. And every single you know, in, in our in grass, we undertake security analysis every year, most repairs, but we always begin analysis with a contrary point of view. We try to address that first, because if you don't do that, uh, Mr. Market will surprise you with a left hook to the ribs, which really hurts. Yeah, I, I noticed that in your writing, and you you don't um, throw your your errors in the trash bin to be forgotten. Your most recent uh, or or the second most recent uh, edition uh, highlights one of your errors in in a recommendation about a Mexican REIT, which, yeah. which has not performed. So you you aren't scared of of admitting your your wrongs, but you still do have this conviction about the eventual popping of of some of these bubbles. And and I would like to ask, what will be the needle? What will pop this this seventeen trillion dollar negative yielding debt bubble? And you you allude to some of the investable opportunities that you think will absorb some of that seventeen trillion dollars. So I, I would like to to start to to address that question. What potentially could be the popping, and where is the money going to go? Well, that's all we lost. That's always the way of things. Uh, but the 17 trillion is, to my mind, um, 
it, it is the uh, uh, it's a little bit like the Tesla of fixed income, right? It's something that seemingly is inexplicable on the basis of price and value. Um, the point of interest rates is to reward those who are prepared to wait. So uh, the reason you get interest when you have cash balances is uh, you are uh, not going to go out and uh, call Amazon Prime and get something on your by agility, by drone, right? You're not, you're not the impetuous kind of person. Interest rates reward patience and punish impetuosity. That's the, that's the theory. Irving Fisher himself, the great uh, interest rate theoretician, laid this out. So negative nominal interest rates are a contradiction. But they are, they are uh, a confection of the central banks. They do not exist in nature. They are unnatural. And because unnatural has blown up to the tune of 17 trillion, you think, and, and because and because actually you've gotten used to it. That is the astounding thing. It's now second rage, it's a second, second nature. Greece following a negative nominal year. Yeah, that's, that's, that's today. Yeah, that's news. Uh huh. <laughs> so these things have become matter of fact with the Treasury, uh, you know, um, borrow connection, nothing. Um, and people having forgotten what came before this. So one is led to think, I'm led to think, well, it's not for the ages, the state of affairs. It's not for the ages. So what might change? That's your question, as well as mine. So what I think is that it could be a credit event, or it could be inflation. That's a truism. I happen to think that inflation is the more likely because it is the, I don't know, because it's the more contrary, because it, uh, it comports more with the cycles of, uh, that I identify in financial history. It comports more with, uh, uh, with the evaluation of things on the board. So what we cannot do, at least what I cannot do, is uh, predict the future. I have proven that to my reader's satisfaction over the course of decades. But what we can do here is to observe how the future is being handicapped, right? And, and we can see uh, where opportunities might lie um, from the point of view of valuation. And valuation is closely tied in with positioning and therefore with contrary opinion. So uh, let's take, so, so let's, say, let's say inflation is going to be the pin that is going to finally find the bubble of debt and of negligible interest rates that certainly almost an uncountable volume of negative real interest rates worldwide. So that's the pin, what I say. Well, that would make sense in a little bit. Look, look, at, look at some of the things that you can point to by, that, uh, that would indicate that the world is positioned wrong for this outcome, wrong in a huge, massive way. Well, first of all, is the, is the very popularity of these bonds. Act on bonds, right? Balance the portfolio. Never mind they yield nothing. The bond is a promise to pay money but we have no definition of money. A money, is, money is whatever they want to make it. Is that okay? People say, yeah, that's okay. It was not okay until about 15 minutes ago in the long sweep of financial history. Um, so uh, I say that, uh, that the monetary system is broken, that bonds priced as they are, are an imitation uh, to hasten the breakdown of this monetary system. So what do we do about it? Well, I noticed, uh, I think in October, we had a, uh, a sighting that, that I, still amazes me, which is the, uh, that the market cap of Exxon 
intraday dip below the market cap of Zoom. Now, now Exxon was kicked out of the Dow, I think, in August. Yes. And it was, then it was the longest uh, surviving uh, stock in, in Dow Jones National Average. And that, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a little bit of a retail bell. Um, but nonetheless, it it focuses it focuses con- concentrated it concentrated my attention more than it had been concentrated or focused on energy. So we have, re- with the help of some friends of ours, including Lee Gehring and his partner Adam Rosenzweig, we have come to take a new and quite bullish stance towards energy. I should also add, uh, with the help of. Uh, the inspiration of our friends at the Horizon Kinetics is that Murray Stahl is a very smart cookie. So um, what we see, uh, Grant, now I'm to acknowledge myself, is, um, is that uh, a lot of, of energy investment opportunities are trading at generational lows. Um, and the backdrop to that, of course, is not just the pandemic and the cessation of commerce and the collapse in energy demand, but it's also it's a function of the well-considered views of many people. The fossil fuels are going away. Uh, they don't necessarily know when. And it's another reflection of the political pressure on people to conform with that very popular and for all I know, accurate prescription, and to not go near Exxon, with, even with somebody else's money. So to me, this is a setup in oil, and perhaps especially in natural gas, to at least consider this chain of events that would lead us to an unscripted inflation, to a lagged and, at first, and disbelieving monetary response to this unscripted, unimagined event, uh, to a rate of inflation lifting off, seemingly at first inexplicably, and then people say, "Oh, that, well, it's not going to be a system flip." But by that time, the central banks will not have twigged on to it. They can't because there's so much debt. They could scarcely raise the funds rates two and a half percent in 2018. Right? The market the market sold off in the face of this. So I, I so that is a, a rough description, not very. I'm afraid not very orderly description of, of my current thinking about what might change things and how one might begin to think about profiting by this change. It would be a sea change not only in, in the world's uh, perception of the investment merits of bonds, but also with the world's expectations for uh, monetary uh, practice. You know, is it is there? My goodness, the, the central banks, if they were stocks, they'd be trading at six times book value. And, you know, 85 times, uh, not very, and, and times peaker, yes, peaker is, because they seemingly haven't discovered the philosopher's stone, right? Just listen to Jay Powell. He just knows stuff. Well, I would like to play the the counterpoint to the negative yielding bond bubble, which is that it's an opportunity cost bet, and that if you actually see negative returns for most assets, uh, you yourself, in, in your interview with Lee Gehring, you talk about how commodity investing is fighting against the tide as as um, efficiency with which we pull commodities out of the ground uh, lowers the prices of them over time as we get more and more efficient. And that's, that's human nature, is to strive for that efficiency. So what if that wins out, that efficiency wins out, and we see negative returns from commodities? Another famous bubble spotter, uh, GMO, forecasts uh, pretty negative returns from most most asset classes over the next seven years. And so if you are guaranteed to not lose as much 
in in these negative yielding bonds, then then the opportunity cost is there. We have we are awash with with uh, capital to allocate, and there's a shortage of assets to allocate them to. And so, if that is the case, then perhaps losing a half a percent a year doesn't look so bad. If if the alternative is losing seven, um, Max, you know what? You have the makings of a of a great investment of a great central banker. That is the best speech I've ever heard defending the indefensible. <laughs> well, but but but, it, but I I will uh, yeah. Let's let's say you are. Um, a big sovereign wealth fund, right? And you can't go out and buy Swiss franc notes and uh, secret them in safe deposit boxes. You have too much money. So you are willing to accept minus 25 basis points for safekeeping. That is, in fact, an entirely defensible thing to do. I, I agree with you entirely. Um, but I think that the, the fact that these rates are negative in nominal terms, the fact that the European Central Bank, especially, I think, has gone out of its way to destroy the... Uh, uh, the credit market's function of reflecting credit risk. These are huge dangerous signals about the stability and the, even the relevance of the bond market as a market. Um, one point you made, I think, is a point that many have tended to make near the top of any market to which they are addressing themselves. That is that there, will present, there is presently now a shortage of securities to invest in. Um, that shortage will vanish <laughs> instantly uh, come the first downdraft. The Fed is apparently not able to contain. There will be uh, a great redundancy of bonds to invest in from that day, and indeed a great redundancy of uh, very high-priced equities. Um, but um, I think you make a very good case for the case I don't believe in. Okay. All right. That, that's fair enough. Um, I, I would like to switch now from, from my own questions to some from the audience. Uh, at Real Vision, we are fortunate enough to have a an audience with wonderful questions, and and they they came in ahead of time, and we have some people asking questions as as we sit here. But I would like to to switch, and we got a question ahead of time from from Kiel, who says who wants to ask about gold and gold miners. So we'll get into these potential plays um, to, to benefit if, if this bond bubble does end up popping. There's a current narrative that gold is no longer required as risk insurance, as the recent vaccine announcements will allow the world to reopen and reflate, which will drive interest rates higher. Maybe gold should be viewed as central bank lunacy insurance. If the world financial system can't function with interest rates above current levels, then central banks must constantly intervene in perpetuity. Could this be viewed as a central bank put on gold, and thus very good for gold mining stocks going forward? Yeah. Well, that's, that's a, that is, in fact, a, a very fine question. You know, I, um, I uh, uh, think that the Fed is, is kind of uh, you know, both uh, um, arsonist and fireman. You know, it, it, uh, it intervenes uh, all too predictably uh, to... Uh, in times of trouble to lower rates and infuse the system with more credit. Uh, the credit adds to the fragility of a system over leveraged as it is. Um, so we become more leveraged, more encumbered with every passing cycle. Uh, the, Fed, the, the system is less able to absorb rates of interest that begin to knock on the door of the deal. And yeah, and there's, a, there's another spill, another accident, and so on. So the cycle continues. I think gold comes in handy for that particular dynamic. The 
you know, every, every investment asset class has its kryptonite. And for gold, that kryptonite is real rates of interest. Now, you should not uh, own so much of this stuff, very little, in fact, perhaps, if you are of a mind that we are on the verge of a regime in which uh, some central banks will allow us to earn a real rate of return on our savings. Um, but I think we're a long way from that. Um, so I, I think that, that gold is an investment in monetary disorder. It's not necessarily a hedge against it, because I think we have monetary disorder. You are investing in uh, the accident proneness of a financial structure that has been uh, over leveraged and over, over managed by these central bankers who know much less than they think they do and who don't know anything about unintended consequences. It's not in their models. But for these, these people are kind of these, these people, it sounds derogatory, doesn't it? Our friends, the central bankers, are, are, are kind of uh, um, our uh, NASA scientist, Monkey, right? They are. Uh, physicists who didn't perhaps quite get hired by Bell Labs, and they write these papers to these PhD economists of the Fed. And if you look at their papers, the first uh, few paragraphs are perfectly intelligible. They are in English. And then come the graphs and the algebra. And, um, and then, to me at least, they verge into, uh, uh, into insensibility. And then, but you skip to the back. And then they have bibliography, citations of scholarly sources. It's rare you ever see in the back uh, a book or a paper cited that is more than published more than five years ago, 10 years ago, tops. And what this has to do with this great question is that the central bankers work on a static kind of model, an equilibrium model. They don't, they are unwilling to contemplate that their actions have adverse reactions. If the Fed, if the Fed were pushing pills instead of interest rates, the FDA would want to have a word with it because it never talks about side effects. Jerome Powell, very intelligent man, gets up and talks about what he's going to do. We're not going to, th we're not going to think about think about raising rates. And if one of the um, obedient and compliant members of the financial press would ever stop to ask, Mr. Chairman, can you help us work through the unintended consequences of a regime of negative nominal interest rates or negative real interest rates. Say, let us start with pension funds and what you call what fastidiously reaching for yield. That would be taking risks with other people's money that you, you are inciting them to take. Could you linger on that one for five minutes in this press conference? But no, that's the CNBC has not got around to asking that question yet. But real vision will, Max. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yes, I will ask that question, and and you allude to it in in your writing. Um, you, you talk about three three corporate credits that you think are an example of that reach for yield, um, and and three really the credit market as the perfect encapsulator of this of these side effects. Um, do you think that the side effects are limited to just the credit market, or is that just the 
the the clearest encapsulation of of these no, signs. No, no, I think it's, it's one clear encapsulation. For example, we had the steepest GDP collapse ever since they began keeping records in 1854, followed by the tightest junk bond credit spreads. So these things again don't occur in nature, right? So something's going on, Max. Um, but I think that interest rates are prices, perhaps the most uh, consequential prices in capitalism. And what we have going for us under the rule of the central banks is a regime of price control, uh, which name price control is a very clarifying name because nobody's in favor of that. Not even the Keynesians are in favor of price control, but we have that. Now, uh, 150 years ago, uh, my friend Walter Badgett uh, uttered his famous saying that, uh, that he alluded to the national symbol of Britain. He said, John Bull, he said, John Bull can stand many things, but he can't stand 2%, meaning a rate of interest as low as 2% on government bonds would incite people and induce them to go and buy Peruvian centuries, by the way, which we just had another issue of. <laughs> so, so, it, well, so, so especially abnormally or unnaturally or artificially low interest rates disturb the entire calculus of investment. They induce people to take longer risks, uh, to reach for credit that really is not uh, suitable for them or the clients because everyone's competing for returns, right? You can't, you can't opt out of the world. I'm in the business of instructing the world as a journalist, a little bit, not, not all we do, but I have, as somebody with a soapbox, I have the privilege uh, once in a while saying, in fact, you, you understand exactly what you're up to, but people who are watching that are in the business of making a return from their clients, that's not their game. What they have to do is take the world as it is, this unimproved world, which is the only one we have, and therefore not a bad world, and to make a go of it. So it's brutal for them. Um, but uh, that's, that's what they got to do. They have to make do with what there is. But to answer your question of so long, of so many minutes ago, <laughs> so these low rates uh, can, can confuse and, uh, and disarray, dis, you know, disassemble, and, and make uh, rather a mess of many markets, perhaps most markets. Well, well, we'll say we'll call it an inconvenience again. <laughs> and a lot of the questions, a lot of the questions we got in are about what the central bankers have left to avoid potential inconvenience, uh, assuming that that is their goal above all else is is to avoid avoid this inconvenience. So, um, you know, we have questions about you know, do you think that we could see uh, the IMF um, agreeing to impose with all member countries a debt jubilee. Are you uh, of the mind that, that a debt jubilee is, is potentially possible? Um, nothing this year is impossible. We've seen it. So I, I, I rule out nothing. I've, I've uh, learned not to dogmatize. Uh, and what inclination I had to insist prior to 2020 has gone with the this singular year. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I think a debt jubilee is not likely, um, but uh, central bankers are up against this dilemma of their own making. Uh, the leverage of the world is uh, kind of a, I think it's David Rosenberg said, it's kind of a tourniquet on the body commercial. It uh, cuts off circulation, it uh, inhibits movement, it's, uh, it's bad mojo. But how do they, you know, how do they, well, they, if they were cunning enough, they would, uh, or knowing enough or clever enough, they, they would induce a, 
Maybe I say four and a half percent. You can explain that away. But how to jump the shark from 1.8 percent, which I seem not to be having with, to say three or four without getting to 10? That's the problem. Mm-hmm. I, I think they, uh, they are in a box. I'm, I'm not going to help you out of it. Yeah, well, we, we have another question about potentially uh, the next step, at least here in the United States. Um, do you place, Tim wants to know, um, what the probability you think of is of yield co- yield curve control being put into place? Um, and, and what do you think would be the, the catalyst for them to implement uh, such measures? Well, I, I think that's, that's it's a high probability of that. In fact, I think de facto is... Uh, this very shrewd interest rate observer, Jim Bianco pointed out some months ago, it almost seems as if it were in place. The 10-year note, um, as you know, has traded uh, uh, for many months, a range of, say, 70 to 90 basis points. It seems to break out once in a while, both to the upside and to the downside. But So we have a kind of interest rate, at least if, if not control, stability built in. Federal Reserve seems to approve of it. But uh, you know, we, we had experience with interest rate, uh, with the, the yield curve control in the 1940s. The Fed fought its way out of it in 1951. But the Fed now is, is lovey-dovey with the Treasury. The Fed, uh, under uh, uh, the, the current leadership in 1951, just, just uh, wanted no more part of, of, of uh, carrying the Treasury's water and subsidizing a massive wartime debt. But uh, now, what you have with Janet Yellen, the Treasury, and Jay Powell, the Fed, is let us do business together. Let us do more business. So I think I think one of the things about uh, our disinhibition today is no more fiscal orthodoxy, no more monetary orthodoxy. Who's going to say it is really a bad idea for the Treasury and the Fed to get too close and for the Fed to buy even more of the Treasury's offerings? Who's going to say that? It was sound... It almost sounds strange. It would it would sound as if it were off the wall rather than the practice of joining hands and feet and arms and trending the Fed sounding as if it were bad practice. So I think in answer to Tim's question, yes, I think the old control as a as a policy or as a de facto occurrence is with us or will be with us soon. Okay. Well, Christos uh, in the audience actually suggests an interesting potential outcome, which is could the central banks immunize the debt away? The ECB holds now something like 80% of the boons, and the JCB holds a majority of of JGB. Uh, Could a solution be that these are swapped for 100-year zeros, essentially expunging the debt? Yeah, it's kind of a debt debt for equity swap, right? 100-year zeros never come. Uh, Yeah. Debt for equity swaps go back to the South Sea don't bubble, I dare say, well before that. So yeah, it's a possibility. I, I, um, uh, I, I, I rule out nothing. Uh, but I'm not sure how Mr. Market is going to would interpret such a radical movement. I think that at some point, the central banks will become too clever by half. And we'll take the next radical step that will totally freak out people who to date have seemed um, almost um, uh, certainly unobservant about the steps we have taken to get moving on. I mean, the, the fact the Fed is now has bought junk bonds, or more than important than buying this, signaled its willingness to buy them. That's much more important than the actual modest purchases or investment-grade corpus. 
what can prevent the Fed from buying equities? Janet Yellen, at one point some years ago, said, yeah, the Fed ought to think about buying equities. So the next crisis, what are the inhibitions? So this, this again, I think- She this actually gets, suggested Congress to, to reconsider the, the charter and to, to open them up. And I think she, she said that relative to other central banks around, the Fed is relatively limited in their right. ability. Uh, the DOJ has been buying ETFs. You know. So, uh, you know, the junk bonds are first cousin to equity. Um, in fact, some of them are very close, very close indeed to equity. Uh, so uh, you could make a, you know, one of these all too clever economists' arguments that there's no big difference between triple C rated junk and uh, equity, where it's simply taking a different portion of the capital structure and the interest of the, I think the phrase now used is market functioning. By the way, let me say one thing about the Fed's radical interventions in March. The Fed's radical interventions long predated March. The, you know, in, in, uh, in the fall, the repo market, uh, the market for financing of treasury securities uh, went haywire in September. Right? So the Fed weighs in and, and, and infuses the repo market with hundreds of, indeed, with trillions of dollars over and over again. And uh, Fed, Fed's balance sheet was growing at a rate in February that caused people to say, wow, whoa, this is a new thing. So this is, this is a month before, was it March 26th or March 27th, a fateful, you know, all in uh, policy lurch on the part of Jay Powell. So this has been going on for a long time. Every cycle is bigger, every cycle is more radical, and every cycle, the investors accepted with fewer raised eyebrows. Oh yes, that's 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 just the Fed being the Fed. Thanks a lot. Thanks, fellas. Yep. Well, Thanks. Th there are some people who tend to agree with you, and Bobby points out that there's a significant net speculative short position in 30-year bonds. So some people tend to agree that that there is some unwinding to happen here. Do you think that? Do you think that this trade is potentially right? Um, and and what do you think could in, kind of unwind it? So when when you think about people shorting the longer end of the curve, um, do you think that they're right, or uh, do you think they're wrong? And if it were to unwind, what would what would take place? Well, there, 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 of course, there's a lot of speculative interest in the bond market on both sides of it. If somebody's taking the other side of that that against the 30-year bond. Um, there is an ETF run by our friend uh, Nancy Davis that is always a yield curve uh, uh, ETF. And you, can, you can get long this ETF, which would give you uh, uh, the expressive view that the yield curve will steepen. That's the point of that ETF. So these things do exist. Um, I think the most likely candidate for a catalyst for a steepening of the curve would be, of course, a um, a succession of inflation prints or a bunch of news that suddenly becomes undeniable. And you can imagine people saying, um, yeah, I look past this inflation problem when uh, we were printing money at the fastest rate in any peacetime era that was in uh, April, May, June. I look past it when the federal debt climbed $1 trillion within a single calendar month. That was also in the spring. I look past it when the supply chain seemed to break down on the back of the uh, of government interventions to uh, uh, to lock us all down, I, but now I say, you know, these these new inflation. I'm imagining now these new inflation thing. This is a little bit worrying. So let me lighten up on bonds. So that's when this might begin to happen, and we'll see. Well, as my friend of mine used to say, we'll know more in ten years, Max. 
Yes. Well, let's say that happens. Do you think the Fed starts buying longer duration? It might. Yeah. The, the, uh, if I were writing the Fed, and don't you wish I were Axel, if I were writing the Fed, I would say, ladies and gentlemen, um, uh, interest rates are prices, and we don't administer prices. We let them be discovered. And for that reason, we will not, the Fed, be buying longer-term bonds. We won't allow the market uh, to have its head express its view because, ladies and gentlemen, in the absence of market-determined rates, we are left with what we have, which is a cartelized banking system stuffed to the gills with the government's debt. We are left with uh, a credit market that has ceased functioning to distinguish between among credits. We are left with this uh, statist contraption that some people on Wall Street call a market. It's, no, it's not actually a market, ladies and gentlemen. It is our idea of what the market should say. That's the speech that ought to be given, but won't be given. So yes, the Fed may well buy longer-term bonds. Well, well, Jim, I, I think there are some people who probably would wish for that, but to use our word of the day, I think it would be far too uh, inconvenient yes, to have you. Very inconvenient. Maybe yes. Judy Schellen should, should, she should get in the Fed board to give that speech in the councils of the Fed. In fact, yeah, let's make sure that happens. Okay. Well, um, we, we are running towards the end. Do, do you have a little bit of extra time? Because there, there, we got a bunch of questions that we haven't quite gotten to. I have a couple of minutes, but I'd be happy if we get short answers or short questions. Short answers or short questions. Well, uh, we, you, know, you are on Real Vision, so we do have to ask you about Bitcoin and central bank digital currencies. So do you believe that Bitcoin or other, any other cryptocurrency can be considered digital hard money or have intrinsic value? Um, I uh, confess to you, this is not my cup of tea. I, I, I look at Tesla, which is, I think, at uh, 920 times earnings or something, 120 something times enterprise value, EBITDA, that, uh, uh, makes half a million, half billion dollars, and has a billion plus in tax credits. I look at Tesla. I say, how is that? It's got what? It's got six, eightfold this year. And then I look at Bitcoin, and I think to myself, huh? I mean, it's what's the intrinsic value? I don't know. Uh, people love it. It makes, it absorbs most of the electricity produced in Iceland, or whatever. The fact that it makes gold mine look green. But it has this fan base that, as parents say, that there is a point of takeoff in which Bitcoin is going to go to $100,000 a coin. Can Tesla go to uh, a half million dollars a share? I don't know. But to me, uh, Bitcoin is a, it's kind of a Tesla of a monetary asset. It's, you know, gold, is, it's, its value is indeterminate. No? It yields exactly what Bitcoin yields. Its book value is exactly what Bitcoin's book value is. But gold has, you know, it has a, a multi-millennial history. And you get dig up a percent or so uh, uh, of the above-ground stock every year, two percent of your money every year. It's a, you can't fork it. As you can fork these currencies, you can't uh, digital currencies. You can't uh, actually manufacture. You can't. So um, I salute the people who got long Bitcoin. I salute Real Vision for its uh, cash of Bitcoin. But uh, it's one of the many things in life I have sat out. Okay. Uh, we got a question from Tej about investment opportunities under a Biden administration. So 
What sectors do you see investment opportunities under Biden? And specifically, he wants to know about your thoughts about ESG investing and whether you think this trend is here to stay. And if so, where where would you be looking within that framework? Yeah, I don't see anything about the Biden administration that would be this positive for an investment decision. There are some tendencies perhaps being built in, such as a lovey-dovey relationship with the Treasury and the Fed, which may help to speed by imagined inflation uh, scenario. But um, as ESG, I think that uh, there are plenty of opportunities there. And I'm, uh, I'm not going to come up immediately with the name of the very imaginative people who are doing the following, but readers of Branson will like this. So here goes the argument for how to play ESG. And the argument is this, that what you don't want to do is buy an ESG ETF. And I'm going to ask Harrison Wadillos in with earshot. Harrison, if you could uh, prompt me on the name of the nice people who brought us this idea on, on uh, ESG ETFs. And there's a, uh, there's a, a company in Europe. That's, uh, but anyway. I, I actually, I have the report right here in front of me. So I can, I can tell you. Um, exactly. The editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Not to, just, just tell me the name of the... Um, of the, but anyway, while you're looking, Max, I will describe the MO, okay? What you want to do is not to buy one of these exchange trade funds that specializes in virtuous corporate, uh, you know, uh, um, emissions uh, uh, company. What you want is to invest in companies that are currently um, uh, polluting, but which have in place a plan to become and to get on the virtuous side of the line. And they will use the investment proffered to them uh, to make the necessary adjustments. Whereas Apple's not going to get any greener. Where if you buy one of these ETFs, you're buying Apple, you're buying Facebook, huh? So what? You're just you're a virtual signal. Take one if you buy one. But to 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 pick out uh, current companies that uh, are a problem are becoming less of a problem and are determined and, and have a realistic plan to implement that plan, great. You are actually contributing to a solution. So that was, that was the, uh, that's the thesis. And uh, so it, it came from Will Thompson at Massive Capital. Yes. Yes. Will so, Thompson at Massive Capital. And, and to synthesize what, what you just said a little bit, it's, it's a bit of like an index inclusion play where you're finding the company right. That is has the plan in place that is going to get it included in the index. So you don't want the company that's already there. The flows, yes. the flows are already there. So you want the company that that has a plan that's going to get it in there. So instead of like the case of Tesla joining the S and P five hundred, where it's just pure market cap growth, it is the 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 ESG component of their business plan allowing I, I it thought, to eventually I thought, benefit. I thought the ma this massive. Uh, um, uh, plan was just so imaginative and so right. You know, it struck me as as why it all matter, all counts. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an investment proposition. And anyway, that's I all for it. Okay. Well, uh, since, since we're running out of time here, I'd like to give you the opportunity to leave viewers with a closing thought. Ladies and gentlemen of Real Vision, buy low, sell high. <laughs> that's that's a and, fair one. And, uh, in full awareness of the arc of monetary evolution or retrogression, what times we're in and what opportunities these times afford us. And what a pleasure it is to live in them. So thank you, Max. All right. Thank you, Jim. It was a pleasure. <laughs>
you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.